Hello, Darksiders. I hope you're all well. About today's story. You know how every week I recommend that listener discretion is advised. No little ears, please. Well, I'm saying the opposite this week. Today's story is one that everyone needs to hear. It is a story that needs to be told over and over again. So please, share widely. With that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story falls outside of how I normally construct my episodes. No law has been changed, no law enforcement upgraded, and there'll be no, hmm, let's find out. However, this is a story whereby something positive was born of a horrific tragedy. The story revolves around the epic life of one man. At a young age, he was taken from his family and thrust into a terrifying world. He was beaten and starved. He ate grass and chewed on his shoes to abate hunger. He was worked almost to death, toiling for long hours in often sub-zero temperatures, wearing only thin clothing to protect him against the elements. He only narrowly avoided being killed on several occasions. He lived in this perpetual hell for years, witnessing atrocities on a daily basis and on a scale that is beyond our worst nightmares. Until, one day, he was randomly chosen for an experimental project in another country. And it was this random selection that would thrust him into a whole new world. But this time, it came with rehabilitation and reaffirmation that there was good in this world after all. It took him many years to overcome what he had endured as a child and he suffered terrible nightmares long into adulthood. For many years, he couldn't even speak about his ordeal to anyone. But as the years passed and the nightmares abated, he knew that not only did he need to pay back the goodness afforded to him that had saved him from a living hell, but he also needed to tell the world about what had happened. The world needed to know, the world needed to hear, his story, so that history couldn't repeat itself again. This is Darkseid, and I am your host, Suze. Does the premise of today's story sound more like fiction than reality? Could such an awful existence really befall one person at such a young age? Well, it did, and not just to today's hero. In fact, it happened to 9.5 million other people also. And today's hero was one of only 3.5 million whom lived to tell the tale. So please, allow me to introduce you to probably one of the most inspirational and remarkable people that you will ever hear from. My name is Arakesh. I was born in Poland and, um, in 1928. I was nearly 11 years old when I was first taken. Eric is now 92 years young and lives in a village on the outskirts of Leeds in West Yorkshire in the north of England. 
I first learned of Arik after seeing a documentary about those whom were randomly chosen for this new project in a new country. The story and the project moved me so much that I knew I wanted to cover it in the podcast. However, through an amazing coincidence, it turned out that Arik and I have a mutual acquaintance, whom kindly put me in touch with him, and Arik kindly agreed to do an interview with me. Over Zoom, of course. So this week's episode is Arik's story, as he lived it as well as some accounts from the others that were chosen or involved in the experimental project. I must forewarn you though, like me, Arik lives in a far-flung village in the north of England, where Wi-Fi is as reliable as the weather forecast, so apologies if the sound stretches in and out at times. And speaking of weather, a gale force was blowing on the day of our recording. Oh, the joys of living in the north of England. So unfortunately, you can hear this in the background on some sections. But please bear with us, as I know you too are going to be so moved by Arik's story. So, as you heard, Arik was born in 1928 in Poland, in the small town of Chirac, near Lodz, in the centre of the country. Arik had one brother, Tovia, and three sisters, Bluma, Ika, and Manja. The eldest, Manya had moved to Lodz for work and lived with their uncle and aunt. Arik's father was a bootmaker who made boots for the Polish army, and his mother was a homemaker. And up to the age of ten, Arik had a pretty idyllic childhood. Most very good. I used to go to school. I used to go to the park, and I used to go to fields, and uh, used to go swimming. <laughs> had a normal child's life. And then, on the 9th of September 1939, everything changed when the German army, or the Wehrmacht, as we know them to be called from the Andrei Sivoniak and Ben Blustein episodes, marched into Chiraz. They immediately began a Germanization regime that aimed to extinguish all traces of Polish culture from the town. They destroyed historical records, monuments and buildings, and street names were changed in an effort to wipe out any connection to a Polish identity. They even changed the name of the town from the Polish-sounding Chiraz to the more German-sounding Chiraz. But for the rest of the story, I will be referring to it as Chiraz, for it returned to its Polish name after the war. Arik was only ten at the time of the invasion on his town, but even at his tender age, he began to see life-inhibiting changes being rolled out, aimed solely at the Jewish population, which made up 40% of the townsfolk, of which the Hirsch family were a part of that populace. Life went on to a certain extent. Right away, it was an order that we're not allowed to go to school, that was the first thing. The Jewish people used to live in an area when they used to live with Christian people together, but it was more a Jewish place, and then they made us stop going into the market square and uh, to certain places, the Jewish people, and then they started 
catching men. They took him to where we had a military garrison in the town. The Germans took over all the, the place. Then they used to catch people for work in the garrison. As Arika said, the Jewish population had been located in one area of the town. And although there were other faiths that lived amongst them as neighbours, it was predominantly a Jewish area. And this made it all the more easier for what the Wehrmacht had in store for them next. And they made like a ghetto. We weren't allowed to go out. We still lived in the places where we lived before the war. It wasn't an enclosed ghetto because the Polish people lived further down the road and they had to pass through our path, so they couldn't close the ghetto. So it was an open ghetto guarded by a policeman on all corners, not letting you out or anything like that. And then we had to be more or less enclosed in the place. And and they used to catch people, the Jewish committee, and um, they used to put so many people a day for work for the Germans. My father was caught a few times, and I was caught maybe twice. A German policeman caught me, and he made me clean his house Every second day, I went to clean it. He didn't pay me anything or anything like that, mm-hmm. but um, he made me do that, and I did it, because we didn't know what's going to be next situation. Mm-hmm. And this is how Eric, his family, and the rest of the Jewish community lived for two years. As time passed, the atrocities against the Jewish people increased. They were made to wear the yellow star on their clothing to denote their faith. Food coming into the ghetto was restricted, and the Wehrmacht conducted humiliations on the Jewish people, cutting off men's beards, beating them, harassing the women, and terrifying the populace on a daily basis. Execution of Jews were a frequent event, used as a scare tactic to keep the population compliant and acquiescent. Something that Arik witnessed many times. And then suddenly, in 1941, they uh, came round to our house as well. Uh, They came at night time. And they they took my father, and uh, he escaped. The rounding up of the Jews had begun, and the Wehrmacht had come for Eric's father. But as you just heard, his father managed to escape, and well... The Wehrmacht did not take evasion of capture kindly, and so... And uh, then they came back for my brother. The policeman came back for my brother. They shouted, my mother, where's your husband, and so on. She said, you took him and I haven't seen him. Anyway, he took my brother, who was um, about two, three years older than me, and he went with him. And then he escaped. And once again, as we're already aware, the Wehrmacht did not take this prevarication with any degree of compassion. And so... And then they came back for me. They shouted at my mother, you know, where is your husband, where is your son? And my mother said, you took him and I haven't seen him. And he looked at me and uh, he says, you come. 
I was about 11 years old. Uh, I didn't think they would take me, but they did. And they took me to the um, army barracks. And then they took us all to the railway station. And they they took us by railway in a camp near Poznan, in Otocno. From the uh, from the railway station, they marched us into the um, barracks, started beating people at the gates. As 2,000 people were herded like cattle into the camp, being beaten and yelled at, the Nazis began a sorting regime. Chaos ensued as people were torn apart, children dragged from their wailing mothers, elderly people hauled from their protective families. And, after witnessing so many atrocities against the Jews back at the ghetto in Cheretz, Arik knew, even though he was only very young, what the Nazis were capable of. And so, when he saw that people were being sorted into lines, he instinctively knew they were being separated into categories of those that were chosen to work and those that were chosen to die. The line on the right contained strong, fit young men and women. The line on the left was pockmarked with the old, the infirmed, the frail, the sick and the young. And this was the line that he was pushed into. Realising his intended fate, Arik, camouflaging himself in the chaos of the people being beaten, dragged and ripped apart, managed to avoid the gaze of the captors, and he deftly snuck into the line on the right. They never saw the people in the line on the left again. By day, everyone was forced into manual labour, laying sleepers and lugging iron girders into position. It was clear that they were building a railway track, but they didn't know why. Arik wouldn't find out until after the war that the railroad was being built for the upcoming invasion on Russia. By night, men and women were separated into respective barracks. Horrendous. Uh, men were, there was about a hundred men in a barrack, sleeping on bunks, and uh, hardly anything, any covers or anything like that. We had guards, SS guards. These are the terrible people. And they used to beat people and uh, hang people and they did all sorts of things, terrible things they did. And they used to love to bring the rope to hang people. Oh, I used to love, enjoy that. <sighs> Life, as you've just heard, was terrifying for all at the camp. And when they weren't terrified, they were exhausted from the arduous manual labour they were forced to undertake during the day. But Arik was too small to work on the railway line, and so... And I was taking in work in the kitchen, uh, peeling potatoes and doing all sorts of different things. Then the camp commander came, looked at me, he says, I want you to come and work for me to clean my house in my office. And he lived on his own. He was a man about 62, 63 years old. Very nasty man. Arik was terrified of the Commandant and dreaded the days he had to go and clean his house. However, over time, he noticed a change in the Commandant towards him. 
and uh, he never used to talk to me. Another occasion he used to tell me what to do, but basically he didn't talk to me. Yeah, from time to time he used to leave me a piece of bread lying there. And in the beginning I was scared, but eventually I took it, I ate it, and he never said nothing. And uh, two days later he left some more bread. And um, for me he had pity. For the others, he was a very difficult man. He used to hang people and he used to beat people. He was a shocker. And the pity he received from the Commandant would be a saving grace for Arik at a later date. Arik remained at the camp for 18 months, toiling in the kitchen and cleaning the Commandant's house by day and squeezing his small frame in between the men in the barracks by night trying to glean some warmth from their bodies. The conditions at the camp were deplorable. Food was heavily rationed, and work conditions for the adults were long, harsh, and heavily physical in all weathers. Each night, the people working on the railroad would return to the camp, carrying the bodies of those that had died during the day, whether from their appalling lifestyle or shot by a sadistic SS officer to set an example to the rest of them to maintain compliant. But, after 18 months, the Nazis decided to close the camp and move the prisoners. Close a concentration camp? Why on earth would they do that, I hear you ask? Well... The day when I was finished, and out of 2,000 men started... Within 18 months, there was only 11 people left alive. Oh, my goodness. And, and I were... was one of them. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> Unbelievable. As murmurs of the camp closing reached the survivors, Eric and the other remaining 10 prisoners wondered what would become of their fate. But one day... The camp commander called me into his, into his house and he says, I'm sending you home. A man is coming from you in town and I'm sending you home. I was very scared because I've seen about a year before that, they told the people that they're going home and they were all taken and all killed, 25 people. But this time, unbelievable, he sent me and another young man back home. That was 1942. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. That, that just doesn't happen. And in 1942, the Commandant kept his word, and Eric and another young boy were sent home. The other eight prisoners were all sent to another camp. If it hadn't been for the Commandant's pity, Eric may not be here today to tell us his story. Eric hmm. could not wait to see his family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters, his father. He had missed them so much and had been so scared for them in the ghetto. However, as soon as he reached the outskirts of Chirats, people came running to greet them, wanting news of their loved ones whom had been sent to the camp. People came running, how was my husband, how was my son? A lot of them were dead already, but uh, I told them that, you know, they're okay and 
I said, everybody's working, everybody's all right. But most of the people were dead. Out of two, nearly 2,000 people, there were only 11 left alive. I didn't want to tell them the real truth. Hmm. Even at his very young age, he had the empathy and wherewithal to not dash the hopes of the other townsfolk, even though he knew their loved ones were all dead. But Eric was desperate to be reunited with his family. My family was still home. My mother and my brothers and sisters were very happy to see me. Life in the ghetto hadn't changed much since Eric had been gone. Well, there were some changes. Everyone was even more gaunt and malnourished than before, and there were much fewer familiar faces, including his father, whom had unfortunately been captured and had also been sent to a camp. Only his mother and siblings remained at the ghetto. However, as bad as the conditions were in the ghetto, they were much, much better than the treatment and conditions at the camp even with the daily harassment from the Nazis and the daily hunger. Eric became lulled into a sense of security that he may be able to sit out the rest of the war in the ghetto. But within a week of his return, Eric noticed an increased volume of Nazis in the town. And these looked different to the Wehrmacht that guarded their ghetto. These soldiers had white armbands on the sleeves of their uniforms. And, just ten days after Eric had returned home... They took us to a church. We were there for overnight, about 2,000 people, men, women and children, without a toilet, without anything. And they kept us there for the night. For the morning, the SS came, picked out... 120-odd people, including me, but my brother, two sisters, and my mother, were left in the church. They liquidated the town from all the Jews. <gasps> the soldiers that Eric had seen growing in mass in town prior to the roundup, the soldiers with the white armbands, well, this was the distinctive adornment of the Schutzmannschaft the Nazi death squads. The very same death squads that eradicated 3,000 Jews in Domachevo in our story about Andrei Savoniak and Ben Blustein. Only Eric and 119 other men and women, whom were young and strong, were chosen to survive the massacre of his town. This was 1942, and Eric was now 12 years old, and once again, the youngest of those picked to carry out work for the Germans. And um, they took us to the railway station. We were sent by train to Lodge. It was a large industrial city there. And, and that was the ghetto. And we were surrounded by barbed wire and guarded with guns and policemen. And we worked for the German war effort making uniforms, boots, hats, all sorts of different things, and we got very little food. This was a whole new experience for Arik. The ghetto in Chirats had been an open one, whereby, although heavily restricted, 
people could come and go because it was an access route to another area of the town. But the ghetto at Lodz was highly restrictive, with gates and curfews and little food or wood for fires being allowed to pass into the area. All the 120 people from Chirats were housed in one building in Lodz. The building was only small, and so they all lived one on top of the other, vying for space and warmth near whatever fire they could light. In addition, at the camp near Poznan, because Ari had been so young, he had not been made to do the heavy manual labour, but instead cook in the kitchen and clean the commandant's house. However, no such consideration was given to him at Lodz, and so he was put to work on arduous manual labour for 18-plus hours a day. Coupled with the constant starvation, the constant fighting for a place to sleep, the constant chill that permeated his bones, and the overall sense of fear that he was all alone in this terrifying world. Well, it all became too much for our young hero. One day I was so fed up with the whole situation that I went out in the street and I sat down and I cried and a lady came up and she says, why are you crying? And I told her I... Uh, I'm here on my own. I came from this town and I don't know what I can do now. So she took me with her. She worked in a kitchen. She had one daughter. This lady took Eric in and gave him a home in return for him helping her with housework and chores. As she worked in a kitchen, she was able to bring more food back to their humble abode. And so, for the first time in weeks... Eric's stomach no longer constantly ate with hunger, and his flesh no longer constantly shivered with the cold, and his heart was no longer empty of compassion. However, as the months passed, the work that the lady gave to him became more and more labour-intensive. He had to carry large sacks of coal and wood, sacks that were almost as big as him, to the lady's house every day and three months after moving to the lady's home. One day, she sent me for some coal, and um, as I went, I dropped a sack, and a, a boy noticed it, and he came up to give me a hand. He says, why do you carry that? I told him this lady sent me, and I had to collect it, and he says, I'm in an orphanage. We're better off. We don't, we don't have to do anything like that and so on. And uh, he gave me the address and I went and I was accepted. And life started to get better for Eric. Well, as better as it could be living in a heavily guarded and restricted ghetto. But now he was with people of his own age and he wasn't made to do heavy manual labour. And whilst food was scarce, they were given a hot meal once a day. He even found work in a factory, making cloth on looms. And for 18 months, life really was marginally better for Arik. And once again, he was lulled into a sense of security that maybe, just maybe, he could ride out the war in this small haven of safety amidst the chaos of barbed wire, gunfire, murder and starvation that was happening all around him. But then... In 1944, 
liquidated that ghetto because the Russian army was already quite near where we were in the ghetto. Once again, Eric, along with the others, were chosen as one of the few to survive the liquidation. Hmm. Oh, that's twice now that he's been spared a ghetto liquidation. And once from a camp. <laughs> Unbelievable. He's like a cat. He really does have nine lives. However, this time, being chosen, was going to come with even greater hardship and horrific consequences. If they took us on, on a train, a train uh, not for people, but for, for animals. A, a tiny window and every wagon had so many people. And they, we were taken to a camp uh, many miles away, and that was Auschwitz. Oh. We arrived there and um, the train stopped and told us to get out. Eric had never heard of Auschwitz before, and he assumed that this camp would be the same as the one he'd been in before, near Poznan. But it wasn't. It was much, much worse. The brutality from the onset was ruthless, as SS officers randomly shot people as they alighted from the trains, for no other reason than target practice. He saw that the people were once again being herded into lines, and once again the weak, infirmed, elderly and young were all being shepherded into the left-hand line, and the strong and the fit into the right-hand line. And once again, Eric knew he was in a battle for his life. Because he knew what happened to those in the left line. Two high-ranking officers were in charge. When I came to the officer, he says, how old are you? I said, 17. I was only 14, actually, at that time. But I knew already their system. I told him 17. He looked at me, he says, right. And he sent me to the other side to the right side, and chose children, parents, to go to the gas chambers. And Eric knew from what he witnessed at the previous camp that he'd never see the people in the left-hand line again. Now, at this point in the war, there were rumours rife throughout Europe about concentration camps with brutal conditions and lethal showers. But few believed the rumours, because... Well, it was incomprehensible to conceive that people could be capable of such atrocities to their fellow man. But Eric knew, having seen the showers from the camp near Poznan, that the stories were very much true, and the lethal showers were very much reality. And so, when the Commandant rounded on the remaining arrivals in the right-hand lane and told them they were going to the showers, Eric shook with fear. And as they were herded towards the back of the camp, Eric could see one building ahead of them that stood apart from the rest, with a tall chimney that disgorged bellowing plumes of black, foul-stenching smoke high into the grey clouds above them. And he knew they were heading towards the gas chamber. His nine lives were up. Being guarded on all sides by SS officers, spewing insults, barking orders and gunshots whizzing by their ears, 
serving as warnings to any that were contemplating breaking formation. Arik knew there was no escaping his fate. But just before the ambling line of captives reached the building with the chimney, they were steered in a different direction, towards a one-storey, long, narrow building. A building without a chimney. A building whose structure resembled one from the previous camp. It was the shower block. And he let out a silent prayer that his life had once again been spared. And then they took, took us into the uh, shower room, gave us a shower, and they gave us uniforms, striped uniforms, and they put us into barracks. We had a thousand men in the barrack, uh, no windows, just wooden, wooden barracks. For breakfast, we had a piece of bread and some black coffee. And um, lunchtime, we got some soup, and that was it for the day. Every day is the same thing. Their hair was also shaven from their heads, crudely tearing out lumps of flesh. And then they were made to queue up for the next injustice. To be tattooed with a prison number on their left forearm. A number that they would be referred to going forward. Their real names being erased along with their dignity and their humanity. Eric's number was B7608. Being one of the youngest again, Eric often found that he was at the bottom of the pecking order when it came to meal shares and space in the barracks to sleep. He was constantly cold and the ache in his stomach never, ever abated, no matter how much rationing he managed to get. They were all soon assigned to work tasks and once again, that higher power that had saved him from liquidation in the ghettos and protected him from hard labour in the Poznan camp was to serve him once again. Alfred was a very large encampment for miles and miles, had quite a lot of different camps. And I was chosen to work in the fishing commando for to fish for the Germans. And so I went and worked in the, the Vistula, the main river in Poland. I worked all, all the time I was in, well, most of the time I was in Auschwitz. I worked in the Fitchy Commando. And another occasion, we could steal a fish, the guards seeing it. So that's what we did. It was very difficult, actually. And because of this position in the fishing commando, Eric was able to sustain himself eating raw fish that he stole when the Germans weren't looking. He wasn't able to do this too often, as they were all watched like hawks, but often enough that he had a regular intake of nourishment. But life at Auschwitz was extremely hard, and seeing the dead bodies pile up in mass graves every day either having been gassed in the chambers or shot dead as target practice, or for some perceived insubordination against the Germans. Eric kept one thought in mind as a motivation to stay alive, to make it through this living hell. Well, we knew about the gas chambers and so on. We've seen the people being 
march to the gas chambers. And we knew the Russian army isn't very far away. And we had hope that we eventually get liberated. That's the only thing that kept us alive. By now, rumours had been rifling through the camp that Russia had invaded Poland. And each night, as they heard the bombs getting closer and closer, they clung to their hope and their lives, praying that the Russians would reach them soon. And just when it seemed the Russian bombs were about to blow wide open the gates of their hell. And eventually, in January 1945, when the Russians were very near Auschwitz, they took us on a train to Germany. Buchenwald. Uh, that was another camp, Buchenwald. <sighs> Unbelievable. Just as their hell was almost over and salvation was on the horizon, they had been moved again. However, even though Buchenwald was a concentration camp, it was very different to Auschwitz, and it seemed as though that protective higher power was once again looking out over Arek. When we arrived, we got a shower, and we got uniforms, and were taken to children's block, well, children from about 13, 14 years upwards. And the few youngsters that were there, which came with, were taken to that block, block 66. Didn't get very much food. They were starving most of the time. But at least we didn't go out to work. That was a help. They had a very small place to gas people. They gas quite a lot of Russian prisoners of war. The ordinary people, not so many, were gassed. Even though he was constantly hungry, Buchenwald seemed like a safe haven after Auschwitz and not having to toil for long hours was a welcome relief. And, as once again, they began to hear the Russian bombs pressing ever nearer with each passing night. Arik was lulled into a sense of security again, that it was only a matter of time before they were rescued. And until then, Buchenwald was the best of the camps he'd been in, and he was content to ride out the war here until salvation. But little did Eric know that salvation was not within their grasp. For the Nazis were about to embark the prisoners of Buchenwald on the worst month of their lives. Worse than anything that they had endured during the war to date. Worse than any horror that they had witnessed so far. And all because the Germans were trying to hide their sins against the Jews from the oncoming invasion of the Allied forces who they knew, would lay bare to the world the atrocities of their crimes against humanity. About a month before the, the camp was liberated, 1945, they took all these certain people, a whole wagon full of men. Also, they took one barrack of the children where we were. In barrack 66, they took us to the railway station, put us onto open wagons for a whole month. We were on open wagons. We had guards 
on our wagon, on every wagon there was a guard with two guards actually, one on each side with guns. And they moved us around for the whole month in April and open wagons. Then and back, because we were bound, the they lines were bombed and uh, it was already nearly the end. The veterinary gave us to eat. We had grass, and on occasion we found some a potato. We put the, the leather upon our shoes and tried to chew it like that. <laughs> it was just oh unbelievable. A, a lot of people died on the way. Just so we're clear. The Nazis loaded a selection of people from Buchenwald onto open-top train wagons and shunted them up and down the country for a whole month. In April, when temperatures range from 2 Celsius to 13 Celsius, that's 35 Fahrenheit to 55 Fahrenheit in the daytime, and can fall to minus 20 Celsius at night, that's minus 4 Fahrenheit. All they had as protection from the elements were the thin, ragged, blue-striped uniforms. They kept having to move them back and forth because the railway lines had been bombed by the oncoming Russian army. And during this month, long hell, the only water they received fell from the skies. And as you heard Eric tell us, they were literally starved to the point of eating their own shoes. People died by the droves during this month and some people resorted to cutting flesh from the dead bodies and eating it as a way to survive. There were so many dead that, once their bodies had been ravaged for food, they were unceremoniously tossed onto the grass verges that ran along the railway. And as they were shunted back and forth, the bodies piling up on the verge became knee-deep along the whole track. In fact, of the 3,000 that were loaded onto the train in Buchenwald, only 600 survived the journey. And Arik was one of them. And within the remaining 600, typhoid was running rife and would go on to take the lives of many of the survivors once their month-long hell had come to an end. After a month, we arrived in Czechoslovakia. We were taken to Rennstadt, that was a ghetto for German Jews, Czech Jews, and so on. The Germans had a whole town, made it into a ghetto, and you couldn't escape actually from there because it had very long, deep walls and so on. When we got into the Rennstadt, a lot of the people were, had typhoid from the journey, and many of them died after the war, some children as well. Things at Theresienstadt were quite different to the other camps. They had not been given the usual shower or new uniform or crude haircuts or even assigned barracks, and nor had they been given any food. In fact, they were somewhat left to their own devices. But all around them, there seemed to be chaos amongst the German army. And with each passing day, as the Russian bombs grew ever closer, the number of Germans guarding them became less. And on the 7th of May, 1945, the camp seemed almost deserted. Realising that the war may finally be coming to an end, and without being under watch from their captors, Eric 
and a few other survivors found an unguarded German warehouse, from which they took as much food as they wanted. Oh, they ate so much that their stomachs hurt due to the sudden intake of rich, fatty foods of which they had lacked for so long. For Arik, it was his first time eating chocolate in five years. And then, just four days after arriving at Theresienstadt. And four days later, the 8th of May, 1945, five o'clock in the morning, we liberated by the Russian army. They came with tanks and, and they were dancing and that. And... From the moment that the Russians arrived, democracy, order and humanity started to be restored at the camp. They gave us in the barrack uh, five boys in a room and we got a piece of bread from the Russians and a, a drop of soup they gave us. Then we stayed in Tredenstadt for a few months. And uh, the Russian fed us rice pudding and all sorts of things. And slowly, slowly, we came back to ourselves. And over the course of the months that they stayed at Theresienstadt, they all started to put on weight. They were given warmer clothes to wear. They bathed often. They were finally being treated as human beings. Sometime after the liberation, a Russian soldier told Arik that he'd seen his name on a list to be executed, dated for May 9th, 1945, the day after the camp had been liberated. If the liberation had been just one day later, Arik wouldn't be here to tell us his story. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. However, as they were being nursed back to some semblance of health, a problem presented itself. In fact, it was a problem being faced at every concentration camp in previously occupied German territory. What did they do with the survivors? As news was sweeping through the world about the camps, and the final solution was finally becoming known as an actual act of genocide and not just a rumour, so also too were the number of deaths and the number of survivors. Just an FYI, I'm referring to the Holocaust as the final solution, because at that time, this is what the genocide was termed as. It wouldn't be called the Holocaust until some years after the war ended. And as I'm telling Eric's story, as it happened in the course of history, I'm using the terms used at the time. So, the news was hitting every press wire and every radio station across the world. Sixteen million people were dead in the camps. Eleven million consisted of Roma or Gypsies, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, Russian prisoners of war and civilians, and the mentally incapacitated and disabled people. However, six million of the sixteen million deaths were purely of the Jewish faith, making the Jews the most prolific group to be massacred during the final solution. But there were 3.5 million survivors, as well as 16.5 million displaced people, and a bomb-ravaged, economically exhausted, resource-depleted Europe couldn't tackle the problem alone. 
they needed the help of the world. And as the world began opening its arms to the refugees, an operation that would take years to complete, one man, in England, was hatching a plan. Leonard Montefiore was a British philanthropist and leader of several Jewish philanthropic organisations in the UK. When Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933, Montefiore had an uneasy disposition. He'd followed the rise of Hitler and found his nationalistic rhetoric troubling. However, as the years had passed in the lead-up to the war, whilst the rest of the world's press were applauding Hitler for turning the economically bereft Germany after World War I into a modern pecuniary powerhouse, with Times magazine even naming him as Man of the Year in 1938. Montefiore, by comparison, had grave concerns, and most especially for the European Jews. You see, Montefiore spoke German fluently, and in the years prior to the war he'd visited Germany several times, and was learning a very different story to what was being regurgitated in the English-speaking media. Hitler was dangerous, and he had a nationalistic, elitist agenda, an agenda that excluded those deemed undesirable with a view to cleansing their country from these undesirables. And in the final years leading up to the war, he'd seen these undesirables become more and more victimised, ostracised, degraded and ridiculed. And this exclusion agenda aimed at undesirables was mostly aimed at Jews. And so, prior to the war, Montefiore established the Central British Fund for German Jewry, also known as CBF which was a Jewish overseas aid organisation that raised money to assist the European Jews. He also chaired the Jewish Refugee Committee, because he knew that war with Germany was inevitable, and if the Jews of Europe survived Hitler's cleansing agenda, there would be thousands, if not millions, of Jewish refugees. And in the years before the war, Montefiore campaigned relentlessly to raise money for the CBF and the Refugee Committee. As tensions in Europe grew and war seemed on the horizon, the organisation appealed to the UK government to allow them to bring potentially at-risk children from Europe to Britain. The Prime Minister was reticent at first, but when Lord Halifax, the then Foreign Secretary, threw his weight behind the idea the CBF were granted permission, on one condition. The CBF had to fund the project themselves. Not a problem, because all those years of tireless, relentless fundraising that Montefiore and the CBF had undertaken meant that they had the funds to operate the mission. And so, just two weeks after being given the go-ahead, 200 children arrived in the UK. And, between December 1938 and September 1939, 10,000 children were brought to England to safety. Today, we know this heroic mission as the Kinder Transport. But, by September 1939, funds were drying up, and as the war was in full swing, it was becoming too dangerous to rescue any more children.
the CBF could but wait until the war was over to rescue the survivors. But during those years, the CBF continued its unyielding fundraising, knowing that once the war was over, every penny would be needed. As soon as the war ended, Montefiore went to Europe to explore what could be done, how the CBF could help the survivors. He visited the concentration camps and met with the survivors, and as he surveyed each camp, each one bearing witness to indescribable horrors, he was overwhelmed by the number of children that had survived this torturous existence. And these children, homeless, emaciated, and with little prospect for the future, weighed heavily on him. And so, he hatched a plan. Leonard Montefiore is a remarkable figure. His response to these children reflects both that desire to do the right thing, to do charity in the right way, and a genuine compassion and warmth towards them as very, very scarred young people. Along with the CBF, Montefiore once again approached the British government and requested that they could bring 1,000 children from the concentration camps to the UK to help rehabilitate them after their traumatic experience. But... Britain was in a very different place than it had been before the war, when it had permitted 10,000 children to find refuge in the country. Now, Britain was on the verge of bankruptcy, and so foreign refugees, even children, were not considered a priority at that point in time. But, just like their relentless fundraising, Montefiore and the CBF weren't about to give up. Oh no. They kept applying pressure to the government, and eventually, Sir Alexander Maxwell, the then permanent undersecretary to the Home Office, relented. But on three conditions. Firstly, the children could only stay for six months. Secondly, the children had to be classed as medically fit to travel. And thirdly, that all transport, housing, feeding and schooling had to be solely financed by the CBF. Again, not a problem. This is exactly what Montefiore had been fundraising so relentlessly for during the war. But when the project was picked up by the media and word spread nationally, soon money began flooding in from all faiths and walks of life in the UK, everyone wanting to help save these children. The CBF set about making the necessary arrangements. They worked with the Royal Air Force to arrange transportation in the now unused warplanes, and they scoured the country for a suitable location to house and school the children. They also worked with the Committee for the Care of Children from Concentration Camps, based in Central Europe, to help identify children for the project. And by August 1945, they were ready to exercise their mission. Meanwhile, over in Czechoslovakia, Arik was still at the Tereshenstadt camp. He was slowly becoming stronger, but a long way off from being deemed healthy. It had been three months since the camp had been liberated, and whilst many had started to make their way back to their homes in the hope that their families would be alive, Arik had remained at the camp, because he had nowhere to go. 
He'd seen his family be liquidated in Shiraz, as he and 119 others were chosen to go to a camp. He knew there was no one waiting at home for him. He was 15 now, and he had no home, no family, and no idea what was going to happen next. And then one day, someone came to him and told him, Eventually, they said that this somebody want to get the children somewhere. They didn't say where to, but they said somewhere. And then eventually they said that we're going to England. We were very happy. We didn't know about England. About. We, nobody had been there, but we heard that it's a good place. And Eric and the other children were so excited for this new opportunity. They were also nervous, though. A country that they'd never been to, where they didn't speak the language. But anything had to be better than the conditions they were in. As stipulated by the government, the children had to pass a medical assessment and be deemed fit to travel. They needed to be free from disease and capable of manoeuvring independently. <laughs> but these children, they'd just survived a war concentration camps, starvation and beatings. They were anything but fit for travel, every one of them, including Arik. Montefiore was put in charge of assigning a medical officer, and he found the perfect person. A medical officer, he was given the job to assess them, and it seemed that no matter what condition they were in, he would look them up and down and stamp them fit to travel, which meant they came with uh, TB, with uh, signs of typhus, with varying illness and ailments. Hmm. Amazing. In the end, 300 children were chosen, and by mid-August 1945, they were ready to transport them to their new home. A home that would become known as the Windermere Project. They took us to the to the airport, and there waited Lancaster bombers, and they took, I think, about 30 children on a bomber. We sat on the floor, 15 on one side, 15 on the other. Took about four hours, five hours, something like that. And then we arrived in Carlisle, and from the buses waited, and we came to the Lake District, to Windermere. Montefiore had found the ideal place to house the children, a now disused factory that had housed the Ministry of Aircraft during the war. It had housing facilities, a mess hall, and rooms that were converted to classrooms. And whilst the site was ideal for their physical needs, the location was perfect for their mental restoration. For my international listeners that may not know of Windermere in the Lake District, I can only describe it as heaven on earth. Rolling lush green hills peppered with lilac lavender, ivy-coated stone cottages huddled together in tiny hamlets nestled in footwells of hills, abutted by the soft lapping waves of sixteen lakes that cushion themselves in between the peaks. It is the home of Beatrix Potter, and arguably one of Britain's finest poets, Wordsworth. These children had left the darkest depths of hell and had now, literally, arrived in heaven. It was like 
was from hell to heaven. It was it was phenomenal. It was delightful. It was tremendous. There's no I cannot describe what it was like. It was late when they arrived, and the children were exhausted, so they were guided to their living accommodation in the barracks. And after years of sleeping hundreds of people deep on wooden bunks with no blankets. And you get inside there, and there is a bed. With uh, sheets and cushions, things to cover, blankets to cover yourself with. We just put our heads down and fell asleep, and we slept, and we slept. The next morning, the children were taken to the mess hall for breakfast. They filed in and sat down at the long rows of tables, each adorned with bread baskets. One talks, how did we feel in the camp? We were starving all the time, thinking of what's food, not families, not, not anything, food. So the tables laid with bread. You just couldn't believe it. And once the morning address and prayers had been given, the children were permitted to eat. And, instead of taking a piece of bread each, a mad furore arose in the hall as the children dove on the bread baskets, grabbing the bread, ripping at it as they all tugged for morsels and running from the mess hall. Some ran back to their rooms and hid the bread under pillows. Others ran into the woods, stuffing the bread into their pockets. Because we didn't know when we were going to make, get our next meal. That was still in our brains. Used to, wherever you had a pocket, a pocket, you started pushing food into it. Some of them hid it under the mattress because they thought they'd never have bread again. We took always some bread in our pocket in case we won't. And we hid it sometimes under our cushion, sometimes in the, in the drawer. And for, for quite a few weeks until we got used to that, we would get the food and we'd be okay as far as that's concerned. The purpose of bringing the children to Windermere was not just to restore them to physical health. But Montefiore also recognised that having suffered and witnessed great atrocities, these children were going to need mental rehabilitation also. And the screams that could be heard throughout the nights, as the children writhed and wailed with night terrors, was a testimony to this need for mental recuperation. On one hand, he wanted to deal with them with tough philanthropy. They should stand on their own two feet. On the other, he was a warm individual who realised very quickly what these children had gone through and that they needed particular care and love to, to stand a chance. Being able to keep going in a, in, a, in a world that was not going to make it easy for them. Montefiore also chose the right staff to care for them. Leading the team was Oscar Friedman. Leonard Montefiore wanted to appoint people who would have known something of what these children had gone through. I think Oscar was that person. Oscar Friedman was a German-born Jew whom was orphaned at a young age. He had trained as a teacher and a psychiatrist before the war. He'd been caught and put into a concentration camp in 1938, but had managed to escape and fled to England in 1939. 
with his background and understanding of what the children had endured, he was a perfect fit to head up the project. Mr. Friedman was absolutely wonderful. He never raised the voice to anybody. And he was always listening to you if you could want, if you would come to speak to him. He was given a job to bring us back to normality. His idea was let each one develop their own thinking and their own character. And he done it fantastically. Oscar Friedman, oh, he was a wonderful man. I liked him very much. You could talk to him. He was very approachable. Very, very nice man, excellent man, actually. He did everything he could for us to help us out. We had no parents, we had no family, we had nobody. So uh, he was very, very good to us. Montefiore wanted to adopt a whole new learning technique to address the children's needs under Oscar's leadership. He engaged leading psychology and therapy experts from around Europe, whom each brought their own brand of rehabilitative teachings. Nothing like this had ever been done before, incorporating therapy into teaching. They took classes in art and were told to draw whatever they wanted, and slowly their pictures belied the horrors they had endured. They had therapy sessions with psychologists, and of course, they were taught English. Because I never spoke one word of English, actually. None of us did. There was one or two teachers teaching us English, Every day we, we had a bit of a lesson. We slowly, slowly started learning. It was a bit difficult in the beginning. And once I got into it, I, I learned quite quickly. And I started reading books. I didn't know what I was reading, but I started reading. And uh, eventually, I conquered it, actually. The children's development was observed closely by Friedman whom sent his findings to psychoanalyst Anna Freud, the daughter of Sigmund Freud, who'd fled Austria as a refugee in 1938 and had come to England. She worked with a team at Windermere to assess the children's work and provide analysis and understanding of the children's development. She really introduced us to the psychoanalytic thinking of child development, but began to get some understanding that all this behaviour had a meaning. At the time, this was quite revolutionary and experimental. Anna Freud published her observations on the Windermere children's development through this new alternative therapeutic education in 1951. It became the basis of a groundbreaking movement in child psychology and child development, and many of the practices outlined in the book started to be implemented throughout the country and the world, and in fact is still in place today, and has become the cornerstone of the development of child psychology. Oscar also believed that the children needed freedom after being contained for so many years, and so, in between classes, the children were allowed to run wild and free through the hills of the Lake District. Go into the lake, on a warm day, used to swim. I started climbing on mountains and so on. We weren't guarded, we were free. 
We went out every day, sometimes of a swim, and sometimes to go in the mountains. I really loved Windermere. It was a wonderful, wonderful place. We loved it. You know, we really started living in Windermere, slowly. One day, a few months after the children had been at Windermere, the Red Cross arrived. They had brought letters for the children, letters informing them of their families. Yes, I got a letter. Didn't find any family at all. Everybody was killed. I, I had an idea before we got these letters, and I knew more or less that the whole family has been murdered. It was horrific. To put this into context, prior to the war, Eric had 81 family members. And in seven years, he was now the only survivor of his family. <laughs> As the months went by, Montefiore realised that there was no way he could send the children back into war-ravaged Central Europe at the end of the six months, where they would undoubtedly be homeless and starving once again. This move wouldn't do all the hard work the Windermere project had achieved with the children. And so, Montefiore started applying pressure once again to the government, asking for an extension on the children's visas. And after much wrangling, the government capitulated and allowed the visas to be extended for two years. But after six months, the children's time at Windermere was coming to an end, and so Montefiore and the team looked to place the children. And then we went into hostels. 30 children, 20 children to a hostel. Some went to Manchester, some went to London, some went to Glasgow. And that's how they distribute us. After six months, I went to Liverpool and it um, was a wonderful place. Montefiore and the team had spent the past six months finding foster homes for the younger children and liaising with business owners up and down the country to offer apprenticeships to the older children, like Arik. The older children were sent to hostels around the UK, where they undertook six-month apprenticeships to help try to get them on their feet and give them a running start. Arik chose to learn to become an electrician. After their six-month apprenticeship, those old enough were helped by Montefiore and the team to find permanent work. Eric was moved to Manchester. I went to uh, a man that came out from the 8th Army. I went to, went to learn electrician. He had three people working for him. And we worked in factories and so on. And slowly, slowly, I've learned the, the trade. Throughout the time that the children were learning trades, the Windermere Project continued to help them with funding. If they needed to take a course or needed income supplements, the project assisted them. Eric continued to make a life for himself in Manchester, working as an electrician. He was happy. He was settling in. He had a life. And then, one day, he received a letter from the Red Cross. They found a member of his family. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> Can imagine. My eldest sister, Manya, she escaped to Russia. And I went to, my, to see my sister in Germany in 1946. 
they especially gave me a special passport and a visa through the American forces. And they allowed me to, because I told them the story, what happened, and they allowed me to go where she was. She was in an encampment in Ulm, and she had one, one little daughter, and she had a husband, and she was waiting to go to America. <sighs> Amazing. Eric was no longer alone in the world. A relative had survived. If you remember from the top of the story, Manya had moved to Lodz for work and was living with the aunt and uncle when the war had begun. Well, when they saw the aggression against the Jews mounting, they had fled to Russia and had managed to survive the war. But Manya had some further news for Arik. My uncle and aunt, they survived as well, and they went to Israel eventually. He now had three members of his family. <laughs> Unbelievable. But despite now having family in Israel and America, Arik chose to remain in the UK. He had made a life for himself here. He had close friends and he wanted to continue with his trade and learning the language. However, it was getting close to the end of his two-year visa and soon Arik wouldn't have a choice. He would have to leave England for good. But, once again, Montefiore came to the children's rescue. Seeing how well all the children were doing, how they'd settled into life in England, how they'd built themselves happy lives, made friendships, had relationships, and established themselves in communities, he didn't think it was fair to send them back to their origins, where they would have none of this. And so, he pressured the government again. And once again, the government was no match for Montefiore. They eventually agreed that any of the children who wanted to stay in the UK were permitted to do so unconditionally. However, in 1948, Arik would have cause to leave England again. The War of Independence had begun between Israel and Palestine. In extremely brief and layman terms, the war arose after the UN voted to divide the territory of Palestine into Jewish and Arab sovereign states in 1947, with half of Palestine being given to the Jews to form Israel. The remainder that was left was now Palestine, a move that the Jewish leadership accepted, and the Palestinian Arab leaders, as well as the Arab states, unanimously opposed. And it was a move that displaced 700,000 Arabs from the newly formed Israel. This caused unrest between the two nations, which led to war. Arik was listening to the news unfold, and even though he had experienced so much war already. Well, I, I thought, you know, we lost so many people and so on, at least I, I'll do something. 18 months I was there. He spent 18 months fighting for his faith's right to their promised land. And even though he had experienced so much atrocity in his life already, he felt the need to give back, to go back to war, to give something back to his people that had been so brutally betrayed in the Second World War. After the war, Arik returned to Manchester and resumed his life. However, a few years later, Life was going to turn on its head once again for Arik. 
I met a Leeds girl, lady. <laughs> I got married. Hmm. Eric moved to my birth city. A man with good taste, obviously. By now, Eric had saved himself a little nest egg, and so he decided to have a career change. Oh yes, he liked being an electrician, but he wanted a change. And um, after electrician, eventually I opened an office in the property, and then I um, bought one or two properties. And life was going so well for Eric. It wasn't long after he got married that his wife, Jean, became pregnant. And when she gave birth to their first child, Eric was overwhelmed. In a good way. After losing so many lives in his past, he and his wife were now contributing towards life. And as he held his baby daughter, it was a moment of wonder for him. Oh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't stop there. So I've got three daughters, actually. One is in Italy, one is in Volta, and one is here, Michelle. Michelle is a pharmacist, the other one is a teacher, and the one in Italy is a housewife. But as wonderful as his life was, there was just one part of his life that he could not share with his new family. Oh, he didn't think that they wouldn't be empathetic or sympathetic or compassionate about the one thing he was hiding. No, not at all. He just couldn't bring himself to talk to them or anyone about his life during the war. Never, never said a word. I couldn't. I was emotional, drained, and uh, it took, took a long, long time by the time I could talk about it. I suffered a lot. I had terrible nightmares. At night, I used to wake up and um, I had terrible dreams for quite a long time. I don't get it now, but I got quite a lot before. It left me. Suddenly, one day, that was it. He just couldn't tell them about witnessing, surviving and being a victim of the Holocaust. But as the years passed, and the nightmares abated, and the world was now talking more freely about what had happened during the war, he felt the need to get it off his chest, to share his burden, to share his story of endurance. But still, the words caught in his throat when he tried to tell his family. And so, Eric leant on the therapeutic learning he'd received at Windermere, and instead of voicing his memories, he used those artistic teachings to express his unspoken words. And so, he wrote a book called The Detail of History. It was a cathartic journey that liberated Eric and freed him to finally speak the words that had caught in his throat for over half a century. And sure enough, once his family read his work, they, of course, were empathetic and sympathetic. His book was so moving that his family encouraged him to share the story. And so Eric did. He sent it to the Holocaust Museum, who warranted it as a valid historical record. And once it was shared by the Holocaust Museum, the requests for personal interviews and opportunities to speak publicly came pouring in. Everyone was hearing exactly what I heard when I learned of Eric's epic account. 
that his story needed to be heard. It needed to be shared. And soon, Eric became an advocate for learning from our past in order to secure a better future. His voice was demanded and shared all over the world. A film was even made about his life. And his heroic work in this endeavour. Well, it didn't go unnoticed. In 2009, Eric was awarded an MBE. I was invited to the palace. I got it from Charles. And I was very honoured, yes, very, very honoured. And I've got a photograph of it, and I've also got a photograph of me shaking hands with the Queen. For my international listeners, an MBE is an award presented by the monarchy to civilians that have given outstanding achievement or service to the community. It stands for Member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. It is one of the highest orders bestowed on civilians in the land. And in Arik's case, it couldn't be more deserved. The Windermere children, whom have been coined over time as the boys, had all remained in touch over the years, sharing their life journeys and triumphs. They even had reunions. But once they'd reached a plateau in their lives, whereby they had established careers and solid home lives, they felt that something was missing. They had been offered a lifeline when life for them was destitute. They had been given safety and sanctity when so many were still suffering. They had been chosen by the grace of God for a better life when so many other children couldn't be picked. They had been nurtured and cared for when so many were still dying in camps in Europe. And without all of this, without the Windermere Project, they wouldn't be where they were today. They had received so much, and now they wanted to repay that debt. To give the same opportunity to people today who feel destitute, alone, with no support structure and no hope for the future. Because what goes around, comes around. And so the Windermere children came together again, but this time, not for a reunion. We call them the 45-8 Society. We hand out to people who need it and so on. And uh, we give to charity. And we help people as we were helped ourselves. Yeah, we do. Every year we give so much to, um, to charity. I try to help my fellow man and uh, whoever I can. And if somebody's in trouble and anything like that, I, I go out and help. And uh, whatever I can, I do. Because I was helped myself when I was a young man and um, I tried to pay back. What I have learned of Eric in our interview is that he is a very modest individual. Whilst he speaks of the need to give back after his ordeal and the collaborative charitable efforts of Aid 45, what he doesn't tell us is just how much they've given back. Because his modesty and humility prohibits him from blowing his own trumpet. So, please allow me to update you on just how far-reaching and prolific this aid organisation has been. Your story of survival and triumph through adversity is remarkable, and your charitable legacy and contribution to British society 
is an inspiration to all of us. These 732 became collectively known as the boys. This crucial chapter in their history was born from the goodwill of others, something that the boys would not forget. The 45 Aid Society embodies all the best qualities of the boys, their love and concern for others, the importance of bearing testimony to their experiences for the benefit of future generations, and their infectious celebration of life. Over the years, the 45 Aid Society has raised hundreds of thousands of pounds for good causes, both at home and around the world. They established a welfare fund to care for those in need amongst their own ranks, as well as donating to hospitals in Sfat and Haifa. In light of their own experiences, the cause of vulnerable children is particularly close to their heart, as reflected in support for charities such as Bernardo's and Micha, the Society for the Education of Deaf Children. If you would like to donate to Aid 45, and can I please ask that you do, you can do so at 45aid.org. That's 45aid.org. Today's story, Arik's story, is an unbelievable journey of a young boy ripped from his family to suffer the worst atrocities that can be bestowed on a person, let alone a child. And yet he and the others came out the other side so positive, so thankful, and with such a desire to give back. Arik and the other children rescued, thanks to Montefiore and the CBF, are an inspiration to us all, of the type of people we should all strive to be. Given our upbringing and lifestyles today, could we have survived as much and be as positive? Hmm? Throughout my interview with Eric, I was struck not only with his resolute spirit, but also with his humility. And it reminded me so much of the humility of Ben Blustein when he gave his testimony against his old friend, turned foe, turned warmonger, in episode 12, The Witness and the Warmonger. It is the humility born of one whom fully understands the value of every moment of living and how life can be ripped from you in an instant. A humility born of one who has survived humanity's darkest hour and lived to tell the tale and used that humility and experience to enrich the lives of others and to teach us all to learn from our past in order to create a better future. Arik is truly an inspiration to us all. Arik's story needs to be told over and over and shared far and wide, so that we too may learn from that humility to turn the negative into positives, to learn from our past, not be guided by it, and to use that experience to enrich the lives of others. At 92 years young, Arik is still giving talks, especially to school children. Of course, the pandemic has hindered this, but he is chomping at the bit to go back out and tell his story. If you'd like to hear Eric talk at your organisation or school, reach out to me and I can put you in touch. Once the pandemic's over, of course. He might be 92, but I can tell you, he has got more gumption and get up and go than most people half his age. It has been an absolute honour to speak with him. I would just like to thank Michelle, Eric's daughter, for being so instrumental in helping us set up the interview, and also to our mutual acquaintance, Dan, for introducing me to Eric. 
If you have liked today's story, Eric's story, please don't forget to rate and review at Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. You would be making one little podcaster who has spent the past week recording in the wee hours of the morning in order to dodge the gale force winds. Very happy. And, as I'm in a thanking mood, oh yes, it's that part of the show, whereby I'm probably asking to marry someone's goat in Navajo rather than thanking them in their respective languages. But, on to the sacrilege. So this week, I'd like to thank Italy. Ciao e grazie. And Honduras. Hola e gracias. <laughs> Maybe not too bad this week. But as always, apologies for what I'm sure I just totally debased. But as always, you know I'm trying. Very trying, as TH tells me. <laughs> so on that note, please don't forget to come and join me on Facebook and Instagram. Just look up Darkseid. I'd love to have a chat. And please, remember to stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. <laughs>